Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us on our latest crime podcast. The Chandavat family were a multi-generational family of 11 who lived together in a two-story house in Delhi, India. The Chandawats were a wealthy, close-knit family who owned property and were loved by all. But on July 1st, 2018, there was a massacre. They were all found dead, hanging besides one another from the ceiling of their living room. When the police discovered some strange notes tucked away in a drawer, it marked the beginning of one of the most challenging, bizarre and frightening investigations that India had ever known. Was it murder? Mass suicide? collective psychosis or a ritual that had gone wrong? What really happened inside the four walls of the Chandavat's home? Join us as we take a look at this unique case where fiction, mysticism and reality become one. Note, there are many names and titles that will come up often in this case. An explanation for each of them will be provided. Delhi, July 1st, 2018 The case begins in Delhi, a major city in northern India. With 25 million residents, it is one of the most populated cities in the country. A former headquarters during the colonial era, Delhi has since become an Indian city. Not unlike many others, it is difficult to get used to. Despite its friendly population, it's overcrowded, traffic congested, and extremely polluted. The city seems to have an unusual duality with a very active minority that is on the cutting edge of new technology and westernization and professionalism while at the same time the majority of lives were also crushed by poverty and the caste system, religious dogma, and the weight of thousands of year-old traditions. Your flamboyant saris in all colors coexist with the powdery, gray exhaust from rickshaws, wobbly buses, taxis, 4x4s, and countless motorcycles, which were considered the most efficient means of transportation for getting around. Gray butane, gas, kerosene fumes seem to hover everywhere seeping into the walls, the retail shops, houses and the ripped-up, overcrowded sidewalks and the wiring that supplied the city with electricity and internet access. It was 5 a.m. and the first light of day was starting to become visible, waking residents as they headed off to their jobs or accompanied those who had been at work all night. The shops and food stores had begun opening their shutters to welcome the daily milk, sugar and bread delivery trucks as well as their morning customers. Throughout the city, the smell of condensed milk tea spiced with cloves and cardamom mingled with the aromas from food stalls where vegetable patties, fries and breakfast fritters were cooked. In the district of St. Nagar and Barari, just north of the city, senior citizens and family patriarchs were usually the early risers. They were the first to begin their morning exercise and the last to head off to work. Guru Charan Singh, 70, had lived in the city since 1997, where he built the house. A retired railway worker, as a retired railway worker, he spent his days peacefully and always began the day with a 30-minute walk. Once his exercise was done, he usually went to the bakery and then made a stop at the grocery store to buy milk and chocolate for his three great-grandchildren who lived with him. Then he went home to have breakfast and to read his newspaper. 
These firmly entrenched and ritualized habits gave the man, who was still quite active despite his age, a sense of well-being. For the past few days, Kiracharan Singh and his relatives had been preparing for their annual pilgrimage to Harmandir Sahib, the Golden Temple, a sacred site for the Sikhs located in Amritsar, Punjab. All 14 members of his family would have to fit in three cars. If they squeezed together just a little, they might make it to their destination without too much trouble. As he thought about the upcoming trip, Kiracharan Singh arrived in front of his friend and neighbor Lali Chandavat's grocery store. To his great surprise, he noticed that the shop, which opened every day at 5 a.m., was still closed. The milk truck, which was probably making its delivery, remained parked right in the middle of the street with its driver, who seemed equally puzzled, sitting inside with his cell phone glued to his ear. Guru Charan Singh knocked on the shop's door. There was no answer. He waited for a moment, then he decided to go to Lalit's house. He always got up before dawn, a habit he had ever seen since he was young. Was he still sleeping? In the meantime, at Guru Charan Singh's house, Priptal Kaur noticed that her father-in-law was late and so she sent her son off to buy some milk. The little boy returned a few minutes later empty-handed. Dada G, grandfather, isn't there and the grocery store is closed. Intrigued, Priptal Kaur took out her phone and called the Chandavet family's landline, but no one picked up. She called a second time and there was still no answer. It was as if no one was at home. She found it strange. As he arrived at the Chandavet's house, the retiree was surprised to find the iron door ajar. Had someone forgotten to close it when they left? That seemed unlikely. One of the women in the family could have closed the door after them. Gauracharan Singh knocked anyway and then rang the bell. Still no one answered. He started to become worried. So then, with a lump in his throat, he gently opened the door, walked around the darkened hall and called out, Lalit, Bhavanesh, Bupiji, are you there? There was no answer. Frightened by the unusual lack of activity in a house where 11 members of the same family lived together, he went upstairs and stopped in front of the doorway, petrified. As soon as I saw the door of the house open, I had a bad feeling. Recall the respected Sikh patriarch with a graying beard. Meanwhile, in another house in the neighborhood, called Deep Singh, Another neighbor learned of the tragedy from his mother, who returned completely hysterical from her morning walk. The elderly woman, who usually took a walk every morning, had seen the same thing as Kuru Charan Singh had. Maji, Mama, what's wrong? What have you seen? asked her panic-stricken son as he tried to calm her down. In reply, the disheveled old woman, with her sorry askew, pointed to the window and once again broke out hysterically in tears. The Chandavats, it's the Chandavats. They were all dead. And like wildfire, the news spread throughout the neighborhood of Santnagar. The police in Delhi received a call from Kaldeep Singh, 7.30 a.m. Upon her arrival at the scene, she found the neighborhood in the grips of mass hysteria. The old, the young screamed. Women cried as if they were at a funeral. Some of them even fainted in shock right in the middle of the street. The police had to elbow their way and had to use their batons to get through the dense, wild, impenetrable crowd. The chief of police, Rajiv Tamar, entered the Chandawit's house and made the same gruesome discovery that was the cause of this disturbance. What he saw horrified him, and he could hardly believe that it was real. In the middle of the hallway, he discovered what Guru Charan Singh and the old woman had already seen earlier. There, hanging in a circle in the ceiling grid, were ten bodies with their hands and feet tied, mouths gagged and ears stuffed with cotton. 
Throughout my 17 years working as a police officer, I've never seen a crime scene like that one, and I hope that I will never see again, recalled visibly shaken Rajiv Tamar. At that moment, he was sure why by the circular position of the bodies hanging from the circle would their colorful scarves automatically make them think of their branches of Indian fig tree, locally known as banyan tree. That image stayed with them alongside other officers. He continued to inspect premises. In the adjacent room, he found another corpse lying on the ground tied. The victim had also apparently been strangled with a scarf. The victim was revealed to be the grandmother and the eldest member of the family, Danyar Davy. The search continued to the roof of the house where the only escapee, Tommy, the family dog, was found alive, chained and barking relentlessly. He was unchained and taken away by the police. Within the immense, silent house, Rajiv Tamar could hear the neighbors' distant screams and moans like a chaotic den. Eleven people in a single family had been found dead at the beginning of July. Ten were hanging from a grid, and the eleventh was found strangled in the next room. In a city such as Delhi, something like that would not go unnoticed. The identities of the eleven victims had been established. They were parents, children, uncles, aunts, nephews, niece, daughter-in-law, and a grandmother. There was Bhavanish, 50, his wife Savita, 45, their three children Neetu, Manu, and Dhruv, age 15 to 25, as well as the youngest brother Bhuvanish Lalit, 45, his wife Tina, 42, their only son Shivam, 15, and aunt Pratiba Bhopal, 45, her daughter Priyanka, 33, and her grandmother Danyar Devi, who was 80 years old. He could have possibly attacked this kind and gentle family. As far as everyone knew, the Chandawats were a close-knit, happy and cohesive multi-generational family. All their photos seemed to suggest the same thing. There were not only photos taken in the Hindu houses of worship, they often attended for wedding ceremonies, but there were also many more casual and relaxed photos taken at home, usually in the bedroom with the grandchildren circled around their grandmother and the head of the household, Narayan Devi. Everyone, both young and old, always had a big smile and the love they all felt one for another clearly showed in every picture. Commissioner Manoj Kumar, chief of the police of the district of Burari, ordered Rajiv Tamar to secure the premises and not let anyone enter the house. Manoj Kumar, who upon his arrival was also quite disturbed by the scene, quickly understood that this was not a case of mass murder, but rather one of group suicide. Let's say that this was a robbery or a murder, there would have been at least two people to get control of the 11 victims. There would have been 20. Yet, there were no signs of struggle in the house or any footprints. All the women were still wearing their gold jewelry, so there could have not been any robbery. The day following the discovery of the bodies, all of the media in India descended upon Satnagar early in the morning. Thus began a showdown between them and the police. Apart from the reporters who continued to be uncooperative, the police had another major impediment, the neighbors and the onlookers. In order to try to stop them, an assemblage of law enforcement officers were deployed throughout the neighborhood. They were ordered to block access to the streets. They used barricades to prevent people from entering the house, but it soon became evident that they were ineffective since many people simply got around this obstacle by climbing balconies and going up the roof. The news of the strange deaths of the Chandavits family generated a lot of curiosity and the crowds became increasingly uncontrollable. Those who were too much fearful to climb the rooftops soon began fighting for access to balconies and terraces where they gathered together in the hopes of taking photos with their phones. 
Never had the police in Delhi ever been in the grips of such a tragedy. The primary concern for the police was to keep anyone from entering the house and taking photos or filming the victims. Yet, an anonymous video, which apparently filmed on that day of the tragedy, somehow slipped right under the nose of the police officers and quickly went viral on the internet and was shared by thousands. The widespread circulation of this document was another stumbling block for the police. Law enforcement strictly prohibited journalists from publishing it in their newspapers or broadcasting it on their television stations. Those who had already seen it recall how they were unable to sleep at night. But it was impossible to stop the video from being disseminated. The media attention on the case grew stronger and became the focus of TV newscasts. The faces of the victims were blurred to maintain their anonymity. At that moment, everyone was convinced that the Chandovit family had been murdered. No one could believe that they were capable of bringing so much harm to themselves. The investigation began amid terror and unanswered questions. They revolved around the search for clues in order to reconstruct the events. The forensic team then arrived at the scene of the tragedy. It was an entire team of coroners, doctors, chemists and photographers, all forensic experts required for an investigation of this magnitude, a first of its kind. But immediately, they themselves were aghast and shaken up by what they witnessed before their eyes and abandoning all professionalism, they started repeating the same mantra as the rest of the neighbors. What was this all really about? What had happened in this house? Some coroners still remember it to this day. Even though we often get calls to work at very violent scenes, this went far beyond anything we could have imagined. It was very difficult to witness, very shocking, since there were adults as well as young children. We are human beings before we're doctors. The biggest challenge was making sense of it all. How could a family of three generations have hanged themselves from the ceiling of their house? With a heavy heart and trembling, latex gloves hands, the forensic teams began investigating and documenting the scene. They not only took photos of the corpses of the suicide victims, but also their everyday possessions, including children's toys and kitchen utensils. They did not want to leave a single detail overlooked. The greatest challenge for the coroners was undoubtedly the act of manually tagging the bodies that were hanging and having to walk between them. It was an ordeal even for the most experienced among them. At the end of the day, they all drew the same definitive conclusion, that this was not a case of murder, but it was still too soon to determine whether or not it was a mass suicide. Everything in the house seemed strange. It looked nothing like a typical crime scene. Then, there were the questions that everyone kept asking themselves. Why? Why were some victims tied up while the others were not? Why was the grandmother found alone in another room lying in that position and not hanged from the ceiling with the rest of the family? Why were the feet of one of the sons touching the ground? Why was one of the sister-in-laws wearing a red and golden ceremonial sari while the other wore a simple cotton one? Furthermore, the family did not leave behind a letter or anything else that might have provided a clue about why the tragedy occurred. For the investigating police in Delhi, it was now a matter of learning about the events which preceded and caused this tragedy and gathering as much information as possible, even if it seemed trivial. That was the state of the affairs that existed when they managed to find a surveillance camera on the other side of the street. A team was immediately given the task of watching the tape several times in order not to miss any details and to determine if the third person was present on the day. The content of the videotape did not show anything suspicious and there was no one at the Chandavat's house at the time they died. The family's remaining relatives, most of whom lived in the country, learned of the appalling news on television. They all chipped in, rented a van and made the trip to Delhi. When they arrived, only two of them, Dinesh, surviving son and another person were given permission to enter the house. 
For the neighbors in Satnagar, the shock was all the more devastating. The Chandavat family was loved by everyone in the area. As affluent, middle-class merchants, they always treated their employees well and were generous to the poorest among them. Guru Charan Singh and his family attracted religious people who usually prayed at the temples twice a day to make offerings and to help the neediest. In this overpopulated area, where the houses were all built according to the whims of their owners, the neighborhood's cramped conditions were just part of everyday's life. But in these often large families, who were used to communal living, and where the concept of intimacy really didn't exist, living close to one's neighbor was also a blessing. When someone leaves their family behind in the village, it's their neighbors in town who take their place, recalled Ranjit Singh, another resident of the area. Bupiji, that what we called the grandmother, everyone adored her. She would greet us as if we were her own daughters. Her daughter-in-law, Savita, and Tina were both very sweet, and you quickly felt at ease when you were at their house. The men never raised a voice, and we never saw them fighting, not even once, added his wife. A multi-generational family who lived under the same roof. A close-knit, loving family who were devout and who treated everyone with kindness surely did not deserve to suffer such a cruel fate. As details about the case began to emerge, TV stations that had been covering the story for a large part of their news broadcasts were for the first time referring to the event as a mass suicide brought on by general psychosis. As for the police, they continued to be cautious as they had since been the start of the investigation. Suicide seems like the obvious answer. To kill 11 people in such a manner was quite simply impossible. It seemed like a mass suicide. But why? According to several testimonies, the Chandavats were all of sound mind, well-adjusted and level-headed. They were not the kind to join a cult or to allow themselves to be manipulated by a third person. Their fate was much too unshakable for any of that. The police also began posthumously conducting a psychological autopsy of the victims by interviewing those who had been in contact with them during the last few days, whether they were family members, co-workers, employees, neighbors, or in-laws. That's how the police learned that the family was preparing for their niece Priyanka's wedding that was to be held in September. That was why the rooms were filled with boxes containing the deceased young girl's trousseau. The women in the family had even ordered their saris from a dressmaker in Bombay a week earlier. It was difficult to imagine that in such a festive, exciting atmosphere of wedding preparations that anyone could be thinking about killing themselves. Police officer Rajiv Tomer and his superior Manoj Kumar agreed with their theory. Then, on the third day of the search, the case took a new turn. And it all started when the police made a stunning discovery. A series of 11 diaries contained in two large registers that were carefully hidden in Lalit's office, the youngest son and owner of the grocery store. But before finding out what was contained in those diaries, go back a few years earlier when Chandavit family had just moved into Burari area. Originally, the Chandavits came from Rajasthan and had always made their living as farmers before successfully becoming merchants in Delhi. The parents, Bhopal Singh and Narayan Devi, left rural life after the long drought that destroyed their farming productions. They then turned to the big city with its noise, concrete and traffic, but that didn't matter to them because they had their children's futures to consider. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. They established themselves in Delhi around 1989 or 1990 after having sold two pieces of property and some livestock. Their youngest son, Lalit, joined them. Narayan Devi Bhatia, a Punjabi, was born to a sick mother and a father who was Brahmin, the highest caste for Hindus, but also the most religious because it included the most priests. She was a loving mother and a devout wife. With her husband, they had three children, Bhavanish, Pratiba, and Lalit. Bhopal Singh was also the father to another boy, Dinesh, from a previous marriage and who had remained in Rajasthan. Pratiba had settled in Delhi long before her parents had arrived because she was married. But her marriage was on the rocks. Her husband was an alcoholic who often assaulted her mercilessly. She had one child, a daughter named Priyanka. In 1993, Bhuvanesh and his wife Savita and their eldest daughter Neetu also left Rajasthan to move into his mother and father's house in Delhi. Then, in 1995, it was Pratiba's turn to sulk for a while at her parents' house since she was no longer able to tolerate her alcoholic husband and her shrew of her mother-in-law. Her mother was appalled that her daughter could be so mistreated by her in-laws. A married woman from India wasn't supposed to go back to home to live with her parents even in the event of a quarrel or a domestic abuse, but the elderly couple, whose primary concern was the welfare of their child, chose to break that rule and make an exception. Let people say what they will, they thought. Following the death of Harinder, Pratiba's husband, her parents suggested that she and her daughter move in with them permanently. Savita and Tina, Narayan Devi's daughter-in-laws, and the wives of Bhuvanesh and Lalit respectively held a fairly important position within the family hierarchy. As good and loyal Indian wives, they owed their in-laws complete devotion and obedience. By earning their approval, they also earned approval from their own husbands. As many of the neighbors called, the two sister-in-laws got along as if they were actually sisters and worked as a team without competing with one another. They preferred to share chores amongst themselves and never complained. They were the first to rise in the morning and did the cooking and cleaning as well as taking care of the children, the grandmother, the grandfather and their own husbands when they got home from work. Yet Savita and Tina were still different in many respects. A close neighbor had this to say on the subject. Savita didn't seem to be very sophisticated or educated. On the other hand, Tina was a woman of the world. They obeyed Boopy G and went along with everything she said and never contradicted her. With their savings, Sachanda had brought a grocery store below their home. The business, managed with an iron fist by the elderly Bhopal Singh, was soon doing well. He was a pure product of the countryside, yet he still ended up coming down with a city dweller's disease, asthma. As he grew weaker from the illness, he handed responsibilities over to his youngest son, Lalit, who had much more business savvy than his older brother, Bhuvanesh, who was considered a dreamer and a spendthrift. With his father's financial support, Bhuvanesh acquired a sawmill, which he then turned into a plywood company. Once again, business went well, and the orders kept coming in. Jatta Chandavat's family financial success did not distance them from those less fortunate. Proof of these heartfelt generosity was on display even at the slightest of opportunity. For example, there was a time when one Bhuvanesh's worker had a bad fall and broke a leg. 
During his stay in the hospital, his employer's entire family came together to help him. They even took his wife and three children under their own roof for a month while he got back on his feet. There was also a time when the women of the household volunteered to take care of the newborn of one of their neighbors, Mrs. Sharma, who lived downstairs and who was divorced and shunned by her own family. The baby liked it so much that he stayed there for another three years, eventually blending with them, being held in everyone's arms and becoming a surrogate member of the family along with his mother too. The Chandawan family's pity, their rural roots and their modesty may have been the reason for their altruism. Their generosity was so great that it set an example in the predominantly Sikh and Muslim areas of Burari. Although the Chandawats were Hindus, they did not treat any of their neighbors differently despite the many religious prejudices which plagued the country and which kept each community isolated and prevented them from ever mixing with others. The elderly couple was so well regarded in the neighborhood that everyone called Bhopal Singh Papaji and his wife Bhupiji. However, the patriarch's eldest son, Denise Singh, challenged his religious devotion and painted a picture of his father that was quite different from the official version. My father loved eating non-vegetarian and therefore forbidden foods. He absolutely loved meat. He liked to drink too and invited us to join him. He always left a bottle of whiskey for Bhuvanesh and me, but Lalit disapproved of it and remained absent and devout. While Bhuvanesh also known for his big heart and his sensitivity, Lalit was definitely the most complex and mysterious of their parents' children. Quiet, diligent, serious, and religious, he never raised his voice, even when he was angry, which in any case rarely ever happened. However, it was a silence that hid a deep resentment because in the truth, Lalit was not happy working as a merchant and lamented his abandoned career as a doctor. His passion for medicine went back to his years in college where, like many ambitious young Indian men, he dreamt of taking on this noble vocation. After completing his high school, he convinced his father to enroll him in the Inter-College, a private preparatory institution that students attended prior to entering the Faculty of Medicine. Classes were difficult. Lalit had difficulty keeping up. He was forced to repeat his first year, barely passed his second, and then failed. He had no other choice but to give up his long-held dream of entering a profession that had never given him a break. When his parents moved to Delhi, he joined them and began working in his father's grocery store before going to work with his brother in their plywood business. In February 2002, when he was 29, he married a pretty young woman named Tina. Their only son, Shivam, was born a year later. Lalit and his wife could not have any more children. Family life went on punctuated by the birth of grandchildren, visits from relatives from Punjab and Rajasthan, and almost daily visits from their neighbors, weddings and going to the temple. In short, they lived the life of a wealthy and traditional family. But all that abruptly came to an end in 2007, with the death of Bhopal Singh from lung disease. For his wife, his children and grandchildren, this came as a terrible blow. The family was in mourning for a month. For 10 days, the household recited the Garuda Purana Brat prayer in order to join the deceased on a long road to rebirth and reincarnation. The ritual prayer that follows Bhopal Singh's death brought the whole family together as well as any of the neighbors who wished to join in. They began at 9 p.m. and lasted anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour. During the kirtans, Lalit always sat in front in his father's place and little by little, everyone began to see this as natural and legitimate. Even Bhuvanesh, who did not challenge his rights as the firstborn. Their neighbors, Mrs. Sharma, never left the family's side during the period of reflection and sadness. As she left to go back home to bed, Shivam, Lalit's son, walked her to her door and said something strange that left her puzzled. Papaji wants to come back to us. 
he said, where he is right now. Then, on the seventh day, while everyone was praying in the living room in the midst of all the incense smoke, Lalit suddenly jumped onto his feet and chanted the word, Aum, while he remained in a trance. The rest of the family followed suit and repeated the same syllable, at first softly, then increasingly frantically. At the end of this mass trance, Lalit uttered these strange words, Papaji has come back, he is with us. That was how the police learned in July 2018 that the family patriarch had died in 2007 and that it had deeply affected his children and grandchildren. In fact, the first page of the diary was a tribute in memory of the deceased and it described how he was a good father and ended with devotional prayers for his soul to rest in peace. The registries were taken into evidence for further studies. The contents of the books was dated starting from the year 2007. Initially, it appeared to be a daily journal in which Lolly described all the things that needed to be done for his business. Up until that point, nothing seemed out of the ordinary. But as they continued going through the entries, the tone seemed to become strange. It was often written in the first person and strict, scolding and invasive, which was the complete opposite of Lalit, who was known for his calm demeanor in any situation. If he was not the one who had written these entries, then who could have done so in this place? For Ahmad Ali Khan, an employee in Lalit Chandavat's right hand, there was no doubt that his late employer had become increasingly odd over the two years before the tragedy. He described to the police that on one occasion, he had the impression that he could hear old Papaji's voice when Lalit was talking and that frightened him a great deal. With this latest revelation and these personal diaries, what was supposed to have been a routine investigation was now taking a turn towards the supernatural and the occult. Yes, perhaps this was precisely the key to unlocking the whole mystery. Perhaps Bhopal Singh, whose spirit had never truly left his home, had decided to remain with his family for eternity in order to guide them in their daily lives as to tell them how to behave in any given situation. Furthermore, in the writings and the notes that he supposedly composed, the tone was typically a patriarch, always strict and unequivocal. As they continued reading the diaries, it became increasingly obvious that Bhopal Singh was asking his son to perform the banyan ritual for the family's welfare and for divine protection. The entries also outlined the sleeping schedules, the way in which to perform ablutions before prayer and the strict vegetarian habits with which the family had to comply. Everything was carefully documented and everyone had to adhere to the instructions to the letter. It should be noted that since the death of his father, Lalit, had never been quite the same. Once the mourning period was over, he gathered his family around him one evening and announced, Papa G has been communicating with me regularly. Sometimes he even takes possession of my body and my mind. Could this have been a case of reincarnation? Slowly, the black sheep of the family, the one who was unsuccessful in his studies and the one who never seemed to enjoy his father's favor, was now turning into his physical representation. The writing in the first diary quickly took on the appearance of a kind of roadmap. It explained how to organize family life, the daily activities, the tasks each family member was required to do, and the philosophy. There was a spiritual selection dedicated to ritual Hindu prayers. The diary was written in both English and Sanskrit. One day, Lalit surprised everyone when he entered into a kind of trance where he didn't speak for months. For this family, there was no doubt that it was Papaji who was materializing with him. From then on, the lives of the Chandavat family were never the same. The mourning period had long since passed, yet the memory of the family patriarch was still vivid in their minds. Although they never spoke of the strange events happening all around them, 
Their neighbors were the first to notice the drastic change in their lifestyle. The women in the family who were usually so stylish now permanently wore white cotton morning saris. There was no longer even a trace of the bracelets made of gold and precious stones on their arms or their ankles. The family had never been accustomed to such a restrictive and disciplined diet, but now it was part of their daily lives. They no longer received many guests, and there were longer and longer intervals between impromptu visits from the neighbors who had once been so welcomed and so natural. Lalit, as well as his brother Bhuvanesh, became adherents of the Reiki and misused it as Japanese alternative medicine. Their abstinence and their restrictive diet not only made them lose weight, but also seemed to give them an odd, mystical air. The newfound devotion to Reiki was probably why Bhuvanesh, who was previously a big drinker like his father, now abstained from drinking even a drop of alcohol in front of his family. His sobriety even extended to his work where he now only ever ended a deal by toasting with soda or tea. However, business continued to go well and Lalit's grocery store remained the busiest in the neighborhood, while Bhuvanesh's plywood business generated good sales at the end of every year. But once the doors were closed in the Burari home, no one really knew what was inside. In 2008, one year after the death of Bhopal Singh, the house underwent substantial changes when a third and fourth floor was added successively to the rest of the house. This aroused the curiosity of the neighborhood, who wondered if the family planned to take in the rest of the relatives from Rajasthan. But that proved not to be the case. The police discovered the first reference to Bhopal Singh on September 7, 2007. The deceased requested that this family kept his black and white photo and always remembered him. He included a special remainder at the bottom of the page. Pray to give up your old habits. The police noticed that the strangest reference began early in 2016. Several sketches are written in pen and felt which were spread over several pages and detailing the instructions for tying knots around a person's wrists and legs. At that moment, the police made the connection with the condition in which 11 bodies were found. In an alignment, that looked like it had been planned in advance. The next page provided an explanation of the drawings. Everyone will tie each other up and when the Kriya, the ritual, had been completed, then everyone will help each other untie their hands. This seemed to suggest that the family did not expect to die. But as the date in the diary entry grew closer to the year 2018, the tone of the entry seemed to change. They went from authoritarian to being almost mechanical and they omitted any unnecessary details. But most importantly, it dealt with the Bautapisya ritual and the process to follow in order to perform each step while maintaining the proper configuration. The Bautapisya refers to the worship of the banyan, a legendary fig tree that grows in the Indian jungle and is characterized by its horizontal hanging branches. In Hindu faith, this ritual is supposed to appease the anger of the gods. In the diary, it was indicated that it had to cover a period of seven days. The family had to replicate the tree's pattern by joining themselves together with scarves. Little by little, things were starting to become clearer for the police. Family members were required to carefully tie themselves together with a piece of colored fabric. And it concluded with, if a group of 11 people is able to follow these rituals down to the letter, then their problems will be solved and they will attain salvation. But nowhere did it indicate that a person had it died during or after the ritual had been completed. Did the Chandawat family accidentally strangle themselves by getting the pattern wrong? Or worse yet, did they all die because they were unable to loosen the nooses around their throats? In the final days before their deaths, the Chandawats left the house less and less frequently and their telephones were either muted or put on airplane mode so that they would not be disturbed during the ritual. 
For the neighbors, who were unaware of the events that were happening, all this running around was probably a result of preparing for the 33-year-old niece Priyanka's upcoming wedding that was planned for two months. The family likely wanted to be alone to discuss private matters, such as the amount of dowry that they had to pay to the husband's family and the gifts that they needed to buy for them. About the three days before the tragedy, Priyanka was working as an executive manager in an electronics company in New Delhi. She described to their neighbors, Preptal Kaur, the plans for the upcoming wedding and all the shopping that she still needs to do. The neighbor recalled how Priyanka was usually smiling and eagerly talkative. Was she merely pretending to be happy even though she knew that her death was getting closer? In the final series of the diary's entries, Lalit or Bhopal Singh spoke specifically of death and of his family's salvation. The following excerpts demonstrates this perfectly. During your final hours, when your last wish has been fulfilled, the sky will open up and the earth will tremble. Do not be afraid but continue to chant the mantra louder and louder. I will then come to save you afterwards. One of the last entries mentioned that someone called the mother. In this case, Narayan Devi was absolutely required to feed her family rotis, which were like flat, unleavened wheat patties that were usually used as a plate during meals. A receipt from a bakery in the neighborhood provided proof of the purchase of the breads when it was found during the search of the Chandawet's family's house. The receipt showed that about 20 rotis were brought for 200 rupees. The bread was delivered to the Chandawet's home at around 11 p.m. on June 30, 2018. The last meal consisted of unleavened bread, a collection of scarves representing the hanging branches of the banyan tree and the grandmother kept isolated in another room. None of it seemed to make any sense. According to experts, the victims would have not all viewed the act of killing themselves from the same perspective since voluntary suicide was still difficult to achieve. Yet, they were all between the ages of 15 and 80 years old. The emotional state of a teenager is quite different from that of a young adult or a senior citizen. Even if they were persuaded by a third person, they would have not agreed to do it. Following that sad events of July 2018, the police investigation ultimately failed to turn up anything concrete despite the best efforts of the officers so who had been involved since the very beginning. Even if the theory of mass suicide, probably created by a collective delusional disorder exacerbated by an apocalyptical ideology, remains the most likely, nevertheless it continued to add to the mystery. Some people even speculated even further by claiming that Lalit had planned it all the three years earlier and that he arranged the killing of his elderly mother, his sister and brothers, children, niece and nephews all by himself and that he was the one who had written the notes and the instructions and not the spirit of his late father as he would let everyone believe. That would have been a cruel mental manipulation. The family's neighbors and relatives continued to vigorously reject these two theories, which they believed were too insulting and far from what the Chandawat family was really like. But were they superstitious, suicidal family who desperately wanted to communicate with their deceased patriarch, or rather a family that was killed and sacrificed by a murderer who is still on the run? Even today, it is still difficult to determine the absolute truth on the matter, which continues to excite both fear and passion. The case of the Burari deaths was the subject of a three-part documentary, which was released in October 2021, shown at Netflix called House of Secrets. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.